Welcome to The Doc Stops Here, University of Oregon's alumni podcast. Today's guest has turned her love of running into a successful business that's helping to improve the sport and empower women along the way. There's no union for track and field athletes. There's no way for them to like collectively bargain like other sports do for things along the lines of fair pay, um, maternity protections, you know, and how to basically negotiate their best. And because there's no collective bargaining for pro- professional track and field athletes, it just means that they get isolated and then they basically just don't have a lot of leverage. That was Sally Bergeson, the CEO of Wazelle Running Apparel. Not only do they make great clothes, but they sponsor pro runners and they cheer on athletes of all paces. Sally believes in the transformative power of sport and is here today to talk to us about her personal journey, her love of running, and how the sport can become more inclusive and more athlete friendly. Sally, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So how did you get your start? I mean, obviously, Eugene is Tracktown, USA, and it seems like a really good place to be into running. (laughs) Well, one funny story I like to tell about being at Oregon and being a runner was that, you know, I mean, I didn't run for the school. Um, It's interesting. I picked up running my last year in high school, and I was actually you know, better than I anticipated I would be. Like once I started training, I was like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. But um, it just didn't fully grab me at that time. So even though I went to Oregon and Oregon's like the most, you know, the runningest college in the universe, I really didn't pick up running until um, the end of uh, my time there. And my funny little story is that I can't remember who was coach at the time. It was Tom Heinen or someone else, but I started to get faster and faster. And so I just, one day I walked on the track um, at, uh, at practice, I think when the team and I approached the coach and I was like, what is, what do, what do you have to do to get on, you know, be on this team? Like I I'm, I'm really getting more into running. And it, it was funny because he was very kind to me. Like, you know, little did I know there's like, you know, people get recruited. I mean, even back in when I was there. And so, um, but he was very sweet. He was like, you know, if you um, start like, you know, blazing some 5Ks and road races and you're just like killing it, you know, come back and talk to me about it. So at least he didn't like laugh me off the track, which was very nice of him. (laughs) (laughs) And what was your journey after graduating from the University of Oregon to become a CEO? After I left Oregon, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know. Gosh, I running really became foundational for me in my twenties. And I did a lot of racing and I did a lot of competing and I joined a club. And so I really just got into running big time. My husband's a a cyclist. And so he was competing and cycling. And so we were like kind of living the athlete lifestyle, which was really fun. And I just felt like I learned this whole new part of my like physical ability and how it strengthened my mind. And um, so even though I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, I felt like running kind of gave me this foundation around which I felt like I could figure everything else out. Um, And that around which was kind of a long path because I was a paralegal. And then I worked at a design marketing brand agency. Then I had my own consulting practice in brand strategy and marketing, but running was still like this constant. And so it was kind of like the converging of like creative and design and marketing and running. And then finally they came together and, you know, after hating running shorts and just being like, 
you know, why, why is this simple garment like so tough <laughs> to, 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 to find a, a so anyway, mm-hmm. it was kind of the, the three of those things, the problem of not finding what I wanted and then that creative journey and then the life as a runner. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of more of a matter of like at every step, there sort of seemed to be this question of like, why are things done like this? Why, why is the, even when we started getting into professional sponsoring, professional athletes, you kind of looked at the way track and field is organized and run and governed. And it was just like all these problems and weird things that put athletes at a disadvantage and that these strange power structures. And so I, I think I just always wanted to be that person that asked why, um, things were the way they were. Yeah. Let me jump in real quick because, um, you alluded to some power structures and sponsoring athletes and stuff, Mm -hmm. and I'm not really sure what that world looks like. Could you maybe flesh that out a little? Yeah. So, um, the way the system essentially works now for, um, track and field is that college system is the feeding, you know, it's the pipeline into the pro world. And, you know, there's probably a certain percentage of the top runners across the top running programs in the country that get offered pro contracts. It's a very small number. The way you get a pro contract currently is you work with an agent who then shops you around and to brands. Um, the issue is that it's a system in which all of the athletes are, they're not, there's no um, union for track and field athletes. There's no way for them to like collectively bargain like other sports do for things along the lines of fair pay, um, maternity protections, you know, what they should be looking for across different brands and how to basically negotiate their best opportunity. And so the And because there's no collective bargaining for professional track and field athletes, it just means that they get, they get, um, isolated and then they basically just don't have a lot of leverage. The biggest money and power and the structure itself is around the Olympics. So, and that only happens every four years, right? Um, that's really the only time that track and field sort of elevates to this massive scale. Um, and the way that power structure is, is that it's really. The Olympics just have a lot of problems around athletes not being properly rewarded for, you know, I don't know if you saw that documentary, it was called The Weight of Gold, I think. And I think it looked at it, looked at it more through the lens of mental health. But, um, you know, we've got big wigs at the USOPC and in the USATF and the governing bodies that are, you know, paid by far more than they should in comparison to what athletes get compensated. So there's just a lot of that that goes on. I just saw a piece in the New York Times by a duck named Alexi Pappas, and she was an Olympic runner. She ran for Greece. She was talking about just that, her personal struggles with mental health and how it's something that's really overlooked in a lot of athletic communities. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but I think it's um, it's a really common um, problem and or just issue of even going into the Olympics. It's sort of like, I don't know, in a culture of where people will do anything to get there, there often becomes a dysfunctional mm-hmm. methods. I mean, doping is the mm-hmm. extreme example, right? You know, if, you know, everything is riding mm-hmm. on simply making an Olympic team, people become, you know, willing to cut corners and cheat and 
but I think mental health is a huge, huge issue for um, elite athletes and often one that's overlooked because people kind of figure that if you're an elite athlete, you've got your mental game, you know, on lockdown and that you're like a master at it. So, um, but it turns out athletes are human like everybody else. Yeah, I can't imagine how much training and how much focus it would require. And like you said, yes, just the, uh, the willingness to do whatever it takes. You're in a position where you can sponsor athletes now. And how do you make those decisions? What does that process look like? Yeah. And have you ever had to pull a sponsorship or consider it or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we, um, well, we're very selective and with the athletes that we work with. And, um, you know, I would say, you know, most recently, so our top pro athletes, as we describe them, are Kara Goucher, Lauren Fleshman, and Allison Desir. And, you know, those are three pretty, like, powerhouse um, yes. leaders, athletes, writers. I mean, they all have book deals. Um, it's, like, pretty phenomenal. Um, but it's interesting, you know, obviously, Kara and Lauren were, you know, cut from the cloth of the world-class athlete, Olympics, world championships, et cetera, kind of elite level. And then um, Allison is just an incredible, like, I always think of her as a movement maker, um, but also mm-hmm. a thinker and a speaker and somebody who's um, such an important leader right now in terms of helping the running industry evolve um, and mm-hmm. really understand its own whiteness, as she talks about. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting how that traces back to Oregon a lot. You know, um, I think the very, you know, at least media covered narrative of running is the men of Oregon, right? Um, the mm-hmm. men of Oregon and Steve Prefontaine and Bowerman and Phil Knight. And, you know, that's been very much the dominant story in the sport for a long time. And I think what's happened over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years is just this emerging understanding of that's a narrative that doesn't fit a lot of people, um, is not, um, not the one that would help somebody feel welcome in the sport. Even what's a bigger, um, more welcoming story around running that actually exists. It's not like it doesn't exist. It's just like, it's the telling of those stories. Right. And, and so I think that's what, what I've learned the most and got the most out of last year and working with a wide number of women from really diverse backgrounds to do things like the Women Run the Vote Relay that we did in the fall, which um, was super powerful. Can you tell me more about the event? Yeah, it was a, it had to be virtual, of course, because hashtag 2020. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it was called Women Run the Vote. And it was a virtual relay that went from Atlanta to Washington, DC. And so, um, and you basically formed a relay team. And so people formed teams, but we had 10,000 participants um, cover that distance. And it just really made it so much more accessible and you know, and I think that's just our mission right now is like, everybody should be invited to the transformative power of body movement. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, if that's really a core idea that everybody can benefit from body movement, then you really, then the exercise is like, it's not to say that elite sports won't, will stop being relevant. It's more just to say, it's this entire spectrum of experience. And um, we can still be inspired by those incredible world-class athletes. But you know, like the case with Allison, we can be incredibly inspired just by somebody who found running following depression 
and family mm-hmm. upheaval and then formed her own community around running in Harlem. And that's as equally as inspiring. Especially during COVID, you know, activities aren't really happening, but running, you can run. Running run. is always accessible. Have you noticed during COVID some big shifts in trends? Um, I think, you know, people have realized in quarantine life and being inside so much, it's, there's a lot of value in just walking out your door and going on a run or a walk. And, and, you know, ultimately that is the beauty and the simplicity of running. I, you know, I, I will say also that living through 2020 and the story around Ahmad Arbery and really unpacking more around who feels comfortable running outside their front door um, yes. and who doesn't. I think that was also a really important um, conversation and kind of understanding because, you know, I had to think about my own like privilege there. Like I literally have always almost in 99% of situations, even when I've been traveling abroad, have felt comfortable. Um, so, so I think, Yes, it is one of the most accessible sports. How did you get the opportunity to be a CEO? Ooh, you know, I actually, I just wrote a blog recently about hearing Stacey Abrams speak in New York City. And one of the comments she made was, um, it was a comment about basically the reason why so many women start small businesses is because they don't see themselves, they don't see a place for themselves um, in the business world. And uh, my, my professional background was that I worked in um, I, I worked at an agency that did um, kind of marketing and brand work for big companies like uh, Microsoft and Starbucks and Nordstrom, kind of all the big um, Pacific mm-hmm. Northwest companies here. And I always did feel like, oh, I'm going to find my place in one of these companies. Like I'm going to go corporate, you know, it was kind of like something you would do as a next step. And um, I just never, none of them grabbed me in the sense of like, you know, feeling like I really wanted to be a part of what they were doing. And then when the idea of making shorts and kind of like trying this thing with apparel came to me, um, well, then I, I, um, I hired myself as CEO. (laughs) So that's, that's one way to become CEO. (laughs) Was there an internal dialogue where you were wondering if you're the right person because you don't look like maybe some of the other CEOs that you had worked with? Well, I think that's just a good question for us to unpack. What does a CEO look like? Right. And I think, you know, that's hopefully changing. And, um, but I think like many people, I suffered from imposter syndrome in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I've suffered it actually not as much with the CEO um, title as designer. I really like was it such a green designer in the very beginning? I knew nothing about apparel design and I had to really learn a lot and get up the curve mm-hmm. quickly. And then with the CEO title though, it's funny. I think I, maybe I used to feel a little uncomfortable about it, but then once you've been leading a business for long enough and you've gone through some pretty serious like challenges, hard things, close calls, you know, yeah. hiring, firing. You're like, I got this. Yeah. And now you're like, okay, yeah, I earned my stripes. I get, you know, this is, this yeah. is, uh, this fits. I'm just wondering how many women don't um, take the opportunity to step into a role like that when they have the opportunity just because it seems big and they haven't done it before and just that sort of internalized um, questioning. Yeah, I 
I think because I just wrote the, that blog, it's on my mind, the Stacey Abrams thing where I heard her talk, but that was one of her other things. Her main number one point was don't edit your ambition. So don't edit your ambition to her meant not listening to that voice, even in your own head that tells you no. Um, and mm -hmm. there's always going to be a lot of other people that say no as well. So, um, and it's interesting because I had somebody ask me the other day, because, you know, when you're in, in a relation and when you're in a marriage, at least you, you think your spouse will be like often the first person that you go to, to kind of like bounce an idea off of. And so when I thought mm -hmm. about starting Wazelle, I went to my husband and I was like, okay, I have this wackadoodle idea and um but i'm 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 seriously interested in it and he um he was really supportive i mean he was kind of i mean he wasn't like yeah that's the best idea ever <laughs> but he was you know but yeah. he was also like you know if that's something you want to pursue you should pursue it and um somebody asked me recently if if he had said no i i think that's a bad idea would i have done it anyway and I think the honest answer is, I don't think so, because it's so hard to start a business and it's so, so hard to do something big and different that um, I think it just, it, it would have been kind of a non-starter if I didn't have like the confidence of, so, so I guess like, yeah, I didn't say no to myself, but also there were people around me that also didn't, didn't say no and that encouraged me. And, you know, he wasn't the only one, there were other my running friends were like, yeah, do it. Yeah. <laughs> Athletes are always like, go for it. <laughs> go for it. Yeah. Like, but you need those people, right? Like you need those people that are just like, yeah, you know, if you, you know, it's not like they're going to not ask you some hard questions or be like, you know, I had one friend who was like, well, with what money? Like, what are, <laughs> you know, which is a legit question. Like, how are you going to fund this? Does that attitude translate to the way you run your business now? Um, we are now taking the time to really articulate internal um, culture values, which it's interesting because when I worked at an agency, so um, we used to consult with companies on doing this. And my attitude back then about that type of work was I was kind of poo-pooed it a little bit. I was like, eh, it's kind of like it's window dressing. It's like, you know, it's kind of, you know, just something you do. So you say you've done it and like do people... But now that um, we've been going now for like 13 years and um, it makes you realize how important some of that work is um, and that it's important to not only like understand it, but like have it up on the wall because you, especially around when you're a company that wants to be like an active activist company, you know, to have the audacity to like question the status quo, um, those those things need to be kind of baked in and kind of understood and everybody needs to be a part of kind of understanding on a day-to-day -day basis what that means in terms of running a business so anyway that's a really long way of saying one of our values that we're kind of tossing around is audacity um i want everybody here at wazell to have a sense of audacity in terms of the um being innovative in their thinking doing things that haven't been done before. Um, and that could be on a product level, it could be on a community level, it could be. So So anyway, your question about like how that's evolved today, I think that's just like hoping to keep that um, a theme that we don't set aside now that we're bigger and we're profitable and we're like on good footing. And are most of the employees, are they runners as well? 
You know, it's funny. We definitely tell people you don't have to be a runner to be to work at Wazal. <laughs> but what tends to happen is um, I think after, people who aren't runners who are in Wazal, they're like, what drug are these people on? They're like literally like, like cracked out on, you know, exercise and <laughs> endorphins and kind of the a lot of the, you know, ex energy that comes from that. So we really just try to like leave that it's like the open hand, you know, policy, right? Like you, you can never like force people to, to try anything or do anything, but hopefully you just make it look so exciting <laughs> right. and so fun that they're like, oh, maybe I'll give that a shot. Well, it's funny that you mentioned sort of the personality aspect of a runner. And I think you know, most athletes like this would be true as well. There's just that experience um, every day of sort of hitting the wall and pushing through it, um, at least on a physical level. And that really does translate to um, work and, you know, emotional stuff. And I really think that, it, you know, everyone should be a frequent right. exerciser yes, if yes. they can. It's so, it's so important. It's so core to health, to happiness, to your brain, like literally exercise creates brain cells. So uh, myself, I'm looking to hang on to as many brain cells as I can and, <laughs> and then also create as many as I can. So, um, gosh, I heard a writer describe something as one of the great facts of her life. Um, I think a person can be a great fact of your life. And I think, um, a pursuit and a, a practice even can be a great fact of your life. And I think running has really been truly a great um, fact of my life. And, um, you know, everybody has different relationships with the things that they do that give them that sense of peace or um, calm mm -hmm. or stress relief or mental stability and all that. But um, I've, you know, I'll always vote for running because I think it's a really good one. What advice would you give somebody who is not a runner, but would like to start running aside from a, a buying your mm -hmm. Wazelle shorts yeah. um, <laughs> first thing? Like when I'm out of shape and I haven't been running and I start running again, it feels terrible. Like, honestly, mm -hmm. you're just like, the, it's going to like, and also the other thing when you start running on any given day, it's such like your heart rate will elevate and you just don't feel good those first go around. So it definitely might not have the best first impression, but just stick with it and then start kind of feeling how your brain feels, you know, after, after a run. And I think that's, that's the good stuff. That's good advice. Just to stick with it. It's not going to feel good. And I know a lot of runners that are like, literally, like I just decided I was going to run down my block. I was going to run down my block and then the next time I was going to run around my block. And then the next time I was, you know, and just like, it's, it's fine. There's no shame in just running down the block and back and then, you know, and then go a little bit further the next day. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, can I ask you a question about the stadium and the trials? Have you heard any rumors about whether the um, Olympic trials are going to happen or is it still in a kind of TBD? I think it's all TBD. I don't even know for sure that the Olympics are 100%. Yeah, I've, you know, I've heard like, yes, but, you know, who knows? Um, I'm hopeful that even if they don't have fans in the stadium, that we might come down to Eugene just because we'll probably have athletes competing. And so, um, you know, we're going to come to Eugene and run on the pre-trail and, you know, look at the stadium from the outside and all that good stuff. Oh, definitely reach out when you're coming to Eugene. We would love to show you mm -hmm. around. Yeah, the new stadium is gorgeous. 
It is. I've seen it from just spider from the outside. The other thing is my oldest daughter or my youngest daughter just got into Oregon among some of her other picks. So who knows? Maybe ah, I'll be a, that's right. Maybe I'll be a duck mom too. Did she get the hat? She got the hat. Okay, Thank good. You. Thank you so much. Yes. I'm sorry. I forgot that was you that sent that, but she got the hat. It's very cool. Oh, good. We're hoping to tip the scales in that case. Oh, yes. You know, little gifts like that always, always mean something. Yeah, it would be very nostalgic if uh, she came to Oregon and you got to be a duck parent. That'd be really cool. Yeah, for sure. I'd love that. Again, Sally, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. It was really fun to connect. I'm, I'm, I get to fly the O for both Oregon and Wazelle, which is uh, always really fun. I love that. Well, go Ducks. Yes, go Ducks. Thanks, Michelle. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to photos of the brand new Hayward Field, to the Wazelle website, and to our social media pages. Keep in touch, and thanks for listening to The Duck Stops Here.